Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. I've got some return guests today. Christine Converse and Ross Berman are back, and we're going to do kind of a follow-up on something that came up in a previous interview we did. So thank you both for being here. Thank you very much for having us. We're excited. Thanks, Dave. Um, <laughs> so maybe we should probably start with the topic, and then we'll do the introductions, I think. So Christine, could you kind of share a little bit about what the topic's about today? Yeah, no problem. Uh, so we want to talk about uh, resistance, resistance through transformation and the different ways that we've seen that uh, through the last five, 10 years of uh, doing agile transformations and even non-agile transformations. All right, uh, cool. So we have broken this down into three different categories, um, active, passive, and institutional. All right, cool. And we're going to explain what those are in a minute. I just wanted to tease the topics to keep everybody engaged and listening um, while we listen to Ross blather on about what he does for a living. So, Christine, <laughs> what are you doing for a living? Because you've got a brand new gig. Yeah, so I got a cool new gig setting up an Agile Transformation office um, with a large jewelry company. I'm really excited about it. All right, well, congratulations. Um, Thank you. And Ross? Yep, still doing the same stuff, Dave. I don't know. Uh, Going into work and fighting with Will every day. That's right. Going into work. Uh, Will's off right now, so I'm a little bored. Uh, no, um, uh, working through a large-scale enterprise transformation, uh, doing design, org, org design, um, all the way through to doing some coaching right now. Since, uh, as you heard, one of our coaches on the team just got a new job uh, building an Agile Transformation office. So i got to pick up some slack there for her. But uh, we're, we're all really happy for her. We miss her on the team. Um, looking forward to uh, hearing more about her success going forward. All right. So if you didn't pick up on that, uh, we all used to work together and Christine just left and got a new job. So um, to, anyway, today we're going to focus on all the different kinds of resistance that people who are working in coaching gigs, trying to help organizations transform, kind of run into. We're going to talk about examples of each. We're going to talk about things you can do to overcome it. So um, how would you, so the, the three you identified were active, passive, and institutional. Could you, could one of you explain like what those actually are? Yeah, so um, active resistance is probably the easiest to identify because that's like people standing up and and telling you to go away or saying they're not going to do stuff. So it's really people actively trying to stop the transformation from happening. Um, passive resistance is a little different. It's um, almost like a fear response where people um, do the wrong thing, but don't necessarily understand they're doing the wrong thing and may even think that they're helping when they're actually hurting. And then institutional um, in this regard is about uh, corporate policy and procedure that puts that's put in place that people and teams can use to slow the change down. Um, and so, so it's more about, you know, having to work within the bounds of a policy or procedure uh, versus, um, you know, people actually trying to actively resist or passively resist. Okay. All right. So we're going to dig into each one of these, try to explain what they are in greater detail and give some examples of each. Um, Let's start with with active. So what what's an example of, of active resistance? So active, like Ross said, is way easier to identify. And I think that, you know, when we really started breaking these down um, into different categories, that that's really the biggest difference between the two is active is going to be so easy 
to see and um, see the actions behind that. So I have a story of one of the my first coaching jobs. It was actually my second, but it was the first one where I had zero influence and trust with the team. So I was brand new employee, didn't really know these people very well. My first coaching job, I had no idea was actually very easy because I already had trust and influence with the team that I was working with. Um, so I walk in one day, it was stand up. My senior coach was a consultant and he was on the phone. I had a team of 10 people standing around a desk or like a large room and went to kick off standoff. And they said, they all said, we're not doing this anymore. You need to go away, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it, was, uh, it sounds really vague on, on what was going <laughs> right, on, right? Right. So easy to identify the very active resistance, right? And um, I stood there like a deer in headlights. I had no idea yeah, what to do. That would be do. a hard thing to respond to if that's your job and the company told you to do it and the team's like, yeah, we're not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And so they had their manager there who, I mean, she would join all the time. It was no big deal. She was in there. And um, she told me to go talk to the VP of engineering. He had some words for me. So I'm even more deer in headlights at this point. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my job. And I have no idea what I did. Um, So I go in there and he says, we're not going to do agile anymore. And you just need to go back to your desk. Okay. Yeah, I'm like, no idea what to do. It was nice outside. So I went and took a walk because I'm still baffled. Um, And then I called my boss because what else was I supposed to do? So you're there as a consultant, right? I was an internal employee. Oh, you are? Okay, wow. My role was scrum master. Okay. And you'd been loaned out to this team and they didn't want to do it anymore. Yep. And... So I called my boss. My boss said, I'll handle it. He went and had a conversation with the VP of engineering and they worked out what they were going to do. And I got told then I was just supposed to go work with the team. So there's wow. a, there, there were a couple of breakdowns there. <laughs> yeah, like first, it's like, okay. So anybody who's out there who's like just starting out, right? And this is your first like real agile transformation experience. Because I think like in Christine's first coaching job, based on like our conversations about that, like it, it was more already a transformed organization and it was like continuous improvement, like yeah. kind of maintenance yeah. mode, right? And this one is like trying to change an extremely waterfall shop um, yeah. into an agile shop. So um, like... Me, because I'm a little nuts, like I would have pulled up a chair, put my feet up on the desk and been like, all right, let's get uncomfortable. We're going to have this conversation. We're going to figure out like what's going on. But I think like a normal human response is exactly what Christine described. Run, Run yeah. out of the room as fast as you can. And try not to cry. That I would have been just like trying to cover my eyes. So I, I want to point out one thing. If you, um, for people that are listening, if you haven't had this kind of a moment, you're going to. And I always encourage people that are working and coaching to have 
somebody they can turn to when they get a day have a day like this or they get kicked in the stomach or the days when you walk out of work thinking I suck they should never let me do this again you need to have somebody that can pick you back up because if you don't these days really suck but if you have yeah. somebody you can call who's been through that who can like listen and be like yeah this like this is shitty i mean there's just no way around it you got dealt a wrong hand by a bunch of bad managers who didn't want to do what the company wanted to do you got completely right. shafted and and what's worse is when your boss goes back in and says nope they're gonna do it and then they send you back in now you're like the kid that ate pace that nobody wants to hang out with and your mom said you had to go back and hang out with the right. Right. <laughs> I was not the cool kid in that. Yeah. And that's what, when we were talking about this, Ross is like, wow, I can't believe that that actually happened to you. It's happened to me but, a couple times. Yeah. And, but B, like there was, there was definitely, like you said, a failure or breakdown in leadership um, because, and, and I want to have this conversation about, you know, what I would have done differently now with years of experience of having these really hard conversations. Yeah. Um, but there was also like a breakdown in leadership because as a leader, if I was handling this with someone on my team, I definitely would have brought them along into the conversation instead of two people going off and agreeing to something and then trying to send a coach back in. Um, that, you know, if you're in any kind of leadership role, make sure that you're bringing your people along because they need to be part of those conversations if you're going to be sending them back in. So that's yeah. a management role. Leadership would have been bringing you along or staying in the room. Yes. And so that is what I would have done differently. Um, knowing what I know now with all of the experience, these hard conversations are hard. But these are the conversations that continue to build trust and influence with teams. And so, like Ross said, sitting down, leaning back, putting your feet up and being like, all right, let's do this. Let's have this conversation. Um, I attribute a lot of that in learning and growing as a parent. Yeah. You continue to gain trust and influence with your kids as they get older and they go through those hard conversations, those hard problems, and you work through those hard problems with them. You're there for the hard times. And and I attribute a lot of that to the, the coaching that we do. If yeah. you're there for the hard times, you build the trust. Okay. And so sit back, have the hard conversation, and and that's what I, I would have done differently. I, I would have sat down and asked why, what's going okay. on and listened. So, and that is somebody who has more experience and more confidence that yes. you didn't have back then. So it's not that you're criticizing your reaction back then. No. You weren't in a position to do that back then. Yeah. No, and it's yeah. totally the normal human response to that kind of like group mentality of yeah. you know, having a group go get the hell out of this room. We're not doing your crap anymore. Um, getting out of the room is totally normal. Yeah. So I want to reference one other thing. So when I have moments like that, I always, I'm a big fan of the art of war. And one of the lessons from that book is that there's moments when you're weak and you have to just be weak and just mm -hmm. own that. And I like to me, that's a moment of weakness. Like you have no strength there. And I know some people who in the beginning of their careers would try to have that advanced conversation. Like I'm, there's one guy I know in particular where I can totally see in that he would sit down and think I'm in a position of strength. I'm going to pretend I'm going to be Ross. But he has no credibility with that crowd. And they're going to be like, get the hell out of here, Junior. 
right? right? And that just that would just make it worse. So you also have to have like some situational awareness of what is your place in this room and what is your place in the power structure of the dynamic that's happening right now. Because if you can't pull up a chair and put your feet up and get away with it, then that's definitely not going to help. Might get security involved, but definitely. <laughs> Um, so I, I have a positive example of this. So I had a, I had a situation one time I was at a company and it was a very fear driven, you know, waterfall command and control organization. And I got this team all trained and they were like really, really into it. And, um, we went through, I think two days of training and then we'd spent two days trying to create a backlog when their manager freaked out and came running in and said, no one's written code for four days. You can stop with all this planning nonsense. I need code being written right now. And. He stormed, he stormed into the middle of the daily scrum and said that, and all nine people looked at him, put up their hand like the talk to the hand thing, and they said, you are not allowed to talk in this meeting. You have to leave. Like, oh, my God. It. it was amazing. That's I was like, amazing. damn. <laughs> I, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. I was shocked and terrified, but it worked great. He totally walked away. <laughs> He was not in a position of strength in that situation. No. Okay. So, so active is a conscious resistance to change, good or bad. Um, they're pushing back and they're doing it in a direct and overt way. And yeah. then as a coach, you have to kind of sense what your role is in that moment and what the best course of action is, whether you fight there or you take the fight somewhere else, or you just go outside and try not to see, let anybody see you crying. Because yes. that happens to all of us. Yeah. Maybe not Ross, but that happens to me. Okay. Um, yeah, no, totally normal human response, like I said. Yeah. So whether or not it happens to me is a different problem. <laughs> For people with an emotional core. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. So let's talk about passive resistance, because that's the thing that I think I might be more of a ninja at. Um, how does that play out? So um, passive resistance is one of those things like you have to suss out and it may take time or it may take like people kind of coming and complaining or whatever about stuff. But um, one example that this is when Christine and I worked together at our last uh, place before uh, um, leading Agile is that we had a, a gentleman who um, really just didn't understand that what he was doing was the wrong thing. He, he like honestly believed he was doing the right thing. He thought he was aligned to the change, but like the re when it came to a stressful situation and a reaction to that stress, he would give the wrong answers. And so um, Christine actually has half of this example and I have the other half of the example. Um, but there's a kind of a funny story about uh, calling across oceans to solve the first part of the problem. So do you want to start with that? Yeah, sure. So we were doing a large-scale planning event that was running from uh, Atlanta, Ohio, and India. And uh, we had one like director-level type person who all day long was just running around like um, a chicken, you know, spinning people up and sitting in rooms he didn't need to be sitting in. And, and so I, I had a conversation with him multiple times that day, like, hey, you know, you, you probably just need to stay out here. Here's what you can focus on today. Trying to be super supportive. Here's your crayons and your coloring book. Yeah, you're right. Here's your crayons <laughs> and your coloring book. But here's what you should be doing. And um, I was 
heading up the event in Ohio and walked into another room. He's sitting in the back, distracting people. And I call Ross in India and say, hey, you know, this person, I've talked to him so many times. They're just not getting it. Like, he's like, what do you want me to do? I'm like, I don't need you to do anything. I can totally handle this person, but I'm, I'm probably just going to have to go kick them out. And this is going to be like a hard conversation. And he's like, do you need me to back you up? I'm like, maybe. I was like, just go tell him to get the F out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> just do it. You've been too nice. And so I did. I went and I, I was like, you got to leave. Like, you're just, you're distracting people. This is just too much. And if you listen to our first podcast, that is not my typical, I will give lots and lots of, but, and then I'm going to be mean. Yeah, there, so yeah, there's I, a time when you have to have that conversation. You have to sometimes be hard. Like I said, just like parenting, sometimes you have to be hard. Right. And I was, I was being hard and I kicked him out of the room. He was not happy about it. He did his usual going and spinning up everyone about how upset he was about it. Yeah. And so, uh, later, like a month later after multiple one-on-ones, so we were moving away from a, um, PMO inside of software delivery. So we had like project type, um, work that needed to get done, like server upgrades and, you know, data center builds and things like that, where the PMO would be, um, leveraged, but we also were bringing project and program managers into our agile system as, um, I called them like department of the exterior. So they handled like dependencies and risks and all the things outside of the, the, what code we're going to write when discussion Okay, as a key member of the team. And um, there was a lot of like pushback from those PMs about like the change in their role and losing, you know, we've talked about this a hundred times, Dave, yeah. like losing control yep. of everything and, and kind of getting a new box to work with it. And he was telling them stuff, but when they were getting upset, he would kind of tell them, oh, well, we can move you back to a PMO role if you don't want to. And, and kind of like putting, giving them the ability to not be part of the team. So um, later, uh, like- a Which is the manager back, trying to be a placator instead of create change. Right. And he thought he was like trying to help the change by moving pieces in and out. But if we don't get those stable teams and that trust built in that team, we're never going to be, you know, moving in the direction we want to move in. So really like his, he was kind of having some like active, but passive resistance in that PI event that, um, that Christine kicked him out of the room finally. Right. And then, um, he, he kind of thought he was doing the right thing again, um, and moving forward and he wasn't. And so, um, I was getting all these complaints from product people, from engineers that like PMs were like shuffling and, you know, were doing other stuff and weren't focused in on the team. And I figured out it was this, this guy and I called him up and I was, I just remember this, like I was pacing in my side yard, like, you know, trying to empathize with him. And finally, like the whining just got to me and I snapped and I'm like, look, dude, like you're a leader people look to you, you need to have a backbone. I'm like swearing, like firing them up and everything. And I turn around and my neighbor, I just moved. So I had this new neighbor and I'm like pacing in between our yards, like screaming at this dude on the phone. And I like go on mute and I was like, Hey neighbor, like everything's fine. Just a work call. And I like go back off on mute. And wow. like finish the call. 
And um, he's like, you know what? Thank you so much. Like at the end of the call, he's like, thank you so much. Like I really didn't know what I was doing was the wrong thing. Yeah. And like I appreciate you being upfront about this. And then he's like, you know what? The other thing, I'm gonna call Christine and thank her for kicking me out of that PI planning room because that was a lesson. Um, that I was being a distraction. It was mostly about like me feeling good about stuff. And then he went and called Christine and yeah, talked to her for like 10 minutes. Super yeah. surprised to get that call. Cause you don't get as a coach, you don't get those moments. <laughs> Thank you for punching me in the face that time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. It changed my life and the way yeah. I view things. What? Yeah. So I want to, I want to call something out here. There's probably people listening to the call that are this guy and don't realize it. Like that person had probably the best of intentions because nobody sets out with, I mean, well, some people do, but few people set out with the goal of like sabotaging things. Um, but it's a lack of understanding. I've, I mean, they always feel like they finally figured it out. And then the more they think they figured it out, the worse they get. And it's just like, just please stop talking over there. Um <laughs> And that's that's a hard thing to get past, but they're not they're not consciously doing it. I even I had a coach one time. He came in all frustrated, and he's like, "I'm coming here tomorrow. I'm telling him how to do agile. We're gonna do it my way. It's my way or the agile highway." And I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> dude!" Um, that does not seem like a so agile, yeah. right? Exactly. <laughs> what about what about the people that are? Um, like in an organization, they hear what you're saying, they seem to go along with it, but they still in their heart know that, yeah, but this is a company and we have to run. So oh, you can do yeah. your little burn down charts, but I got to turn a Gantt chart in upstairs and I got to make sure you deliver on schedule. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're still emotionally bought into the legacy and they can't let go of it. Like what, how does, how does a coach or an organization respond to those people? Yes, that's that's what I call the bobblehead syndrome, where you're in a training session, you're talking about like feature road mapping, and they're bobbing their head, you know, while they're filling out their project plan milestones and getting But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, feature roadmap, that sounds like super important. But that'll like, be I'm number sure. 13 on the list. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm gonna set up my Gantt chart of sprint ceremonies over right. the next delivery cycle um, before we hand off to the testers, right? So um, yeah, there, that's a definite passive resistance. And I think like uh, the way that you combat that is um, a little bit like that kind of bleeds into the institutional stuff around policy and procedure that I was talking about. Like the PMO still requires us to fill out our TPS Gantt chart cover sheet report file. Right. And we're going to turn that in. And really like there's three ways I think to, that you can combat that. One is to, to make them see that that adds no value to the customer. And it doesn't matter. If we build seven features this release and we deliver them to market and customers are happy and buying our product, nobody's going to care if the Gantt chart was right or finished or filled out. Because the Gantt chart is a way to make sure that product gets to market in an old system. And if product is hitting the market in the new system, nobody's going to care about the artifacts of the old system. Okay. That's if they're not like a compliant or, or regulatory concern. Um, if they're a compliance or regulatory concern, that would lead us into that policy procedure um, aspect. And, and in that, you either need to, um, and Christina, I were talking about this a little bit before the show as we were preparing, like you need to um, either build the requirements into the flow or 
Um, if that doesn't suffice, sometimes you have to like grab a team of leaders and get your pitchforks and torches and fight the paperwork um, and stop fighting the, the, the people who are just trying to do the right thing and follow the paperwork. Like sometimes you have to go suss that paperwork out and, and burn it to the ground and change it up. And so we have some examples of those two things, but I think like people are just trying to do the right thing. And if they're, uh, you know, VP of PMO is getting on them about their reports missing and their documentation missing and stuff like that, they're going to do it. And we as coaches need to empower them to tell their boss that, no, we're on track. Here is this feature roadmap that shows that we're going to, have all these features that we committed to delivered on time. Here's our risk burn down. We're managing all the risks. Here's how we're dealing with dependencies. If you haven't gotten to a point where you can remove them, here's our plan to manage them. I think if we have all those answers in the, in the new system, we don't need to rely on the old systems artifacts. Well, don't you also want to get with the, the person who's requesting these forms and have them understand that just because we've always done them in the past, that maybe they can let go and we don't need to do them in the future. I mean, like I'm, I'm wondering why they're still asking for them. So this is a conversation that we were having um, at the, the last company that Ross and I were at together that we kept having over and over again is that this isn't in addition to the work that you're currently doing. This is the work that you're doing. So yeah. if, if we need that Gantt chart, it's going to be part of the workflow or Maybe this Gantt chart now is the feature roadmap and we don't have to do that Gantt chart anymore. And just really breaking it down and showing them that, okay, yes, we still need to do that or no, we don't. And here's where you get that information because that just looks a little bit differently. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really important part is, is finding a way to meet the informational need without maybe giving them exactly what they're asking for. But I mean, just to cut them some slack, they don't know the other answers. Like I, I always talk right. about this with reporting. Like if I say to a waterfall manager, what kind of report do you want? Gantt chart, um, stoplight report, um, utilization report. Like those are the only answers they have to that question. It's not like they're giving the wrong one. They just don't know any other ones. Right. Yeah. Well, there's that. And there's also like, you know, in our last two places that Christine and I worked at together and then my experience with like defense and state department before there are like, agreed upon auditable procedures that you need to follow in order to be compliant with regulations, not because you have to follow a waterfall process, but that's the one that you told the governing body that has, that owns the regulation. You told them you were going to follow that process and build those documents. Yeah. So there's, um, and that's kind of where this bleeds into, is it a, a best practice or a good practice that the company is doing to have a Gantt chart, or is it really like a legal requirement? Where are the differentiators between there? How do we get them to use the new process as the auditable process? Um, how do we build that? Like, how do we do that when there's a gap where some teams are going to be following the old process and some teams are going to be following the new process? Like there's a lot of planning and, and yeah. policy and procedure change that I have to go into that. But to your point, if it's just like a run-of-the-mill software company that's that's putting out products and the PMO is making people do Gantt charts, even though they're in the new system, go into that PMO leader and saying, hey, buddy, like, you know, slow your roll on the Gantt charts. Here's these other reports and giving them that education is one thing. But also, they might not even understand 
how busy the new um, the new role that these PMs are filling from a responsibilities perspective in the in the new system is, and they might just think, oh, it'll take them five seconds to pump out a Gantt chart. And they're, you know, in this agile thing, there's not planning anymore. So what would a project manager be doing anyway? You know, yeah. like they might have the wrong assumptions about like the system in general. Um, and, you know, they have, they're just like, oh, it'll be easy for you to pump out this Gantt chart that doesn't exist in the new system anymore. I think there's also kind of like a, maybe it's an organizational habit. Like the, some of that stuff, the Gantt charts and things like that, um, they're in there because they solved a problem that we had. We just don't have that. We have a different problem, and they're still trying to apply the old solution. It's sort of like, you know, cooking with lard or smoking cigarettes to cause relaxation in pregnant women. Like it's just that's not the right solution now that we have the information we have. But it was yeah. at a time. Yeah. Okay. So, so what would you say to the leaders of these companies if they've got like how do they know that they're seeing this institutional resistance? So institutional resistance, they will see like the exact same behaviors and they will see complaints about extra things to do. Um, okay. So because, because of the policy or procedure that's required, they're doing that, which probably has process and meetings and those things to do. And then they're also doing our, you know, agile transformation and the Agile transformation now is seen as extra work on top of, not a replacement for how to do the work. Okay. So in two different aspects, um, I'm going to talk about this from like a DOD contracting perspective. When I um, did some contracting work for the Navy, um, all of the contracts were written in a waterfall process. So it was a, a task order base. You would cut your task order. You would have to do all your documentation up front, you know, your requirements discovery, you would close that phase, you would go off to the design phase, then you would go to the build phase, like totally old um, DSIM, you know, defense system engineering model V engineering waterfall process, right? And so um, one of the first things I did there was I mapped uh, Agile they were doing a scaled agile transformation. So map the scaled agile transformation workflow and items to the DSIM V and then went through and looked at the um, engineering policy that was written and the procedure that was contractually obligated to follow the process. And then I had to figure out how to affect change in that procedure so that we could still get the um, approval. Long story short on that one in months of work, um, we came to the realization that we, as, a, as an organization, needed to create a new task order process to cut what we called agile uh, work orders. And this would give the, the Navy the ability to buy engineering capacity over a set period of time. And so they would buy scrum teams for a program increment and... They would do a PI planning, like in the safe model, for features that we're going to be committed to. And then they would uh, go off on that time and start delivering the work. And they would adjust the scope, but they had a fixed cost and a fixed time. Okay. And they would go that way. And it, and it worked out. And they, they were a lot happier with that solution. One of the, the projects um, that actually I got assigned to fix ended up going and piloting out this new way of doing things because the layers of complexity of this new 
um, architecture and project to do administration across two different domains was was too much to do in a waterfall planning mechanism. There was just too many moving pieces, too many um, risks and dependencies across every almost every engineering team possible um, in the old structure and way that they did work. So we had to completely reorg and move towards this um, agile task order uh, process and it worked out really well. But we actually had to get leadership both on the government side and the contract um, company side to actually work together to make this policy change on how they could spend money in this um, in this agreement they had. Cool. So I'm wondering like what, if you could go back in time, and Ross, I'm specifically curious about you. If you could go back in time to before you knew this stuff, what advice would you give yourself when you were experiencing these types of things? For me, like I'm really quick to get mad at people, <laughs> right? And it's like, I really need to focus, like I need to remember now, and I'm a lot more mature about it now, about channeling my energy uh, and being mad at the paper, right? Whatever that SOP or policy thing is like, I need to get mad at that. And I need to take that and destroy it. Like, and I don't need to destroy the people who are just trying to do <laughs> what it is that, that it says in the SOP because early on in my career, that's how I would approach it. And I would go and I would find that person and I would crush them emotionally, okay. not physically. Right, <laughs> right. We joke about Ross being a bull in a China shop a lot. And I'll be like, we don't need Ross Bull in a China shop. We need like Ross to come in with Delicate. some, yeah. yeah, some some white gloves here. <laughs> so, I get the thing about smashing the paper. I'm thinking of like the Hulk smashing stuff, but right, it's like a systematic problem, really, though. It is, and it's like you have to, like, for me. And one of the things I've learned in the last like three, four years is you know, the, the Deming quote about a system will produce exactly what it's designed to, right? Yeah. is so true. And these companies, especially these ones that the last couple that I've been in who have been around for so long, it's the same people who started the company, you know, are still doing the work and, you know, all this stuff. It's like, they don't know any better yeah. And they built the system 30, 40 years ago, and they're still operating in that system because it worked for them and it made them successful 30, 40 years ago. And what they don't understand is how um, impactful and important it is to be uh, flexible to market demand as quickly as possible because all these startup companies that are trying to do the same type of stuff are able to be more flexible and, and, and meet market demand quicker because they don't have 30, 40 years of institutional policy and procedure that are set up to go a certain way just because folks are comfortable. And so I got, I, like me, I have to remember, you know, Christine, it's not Christine's fault. She's pulling the policy out of the policy document folder and showing it to me. And it doesn't matter how stupid I think that policy is. She still is like, responsible for following it yeah. until I change the stupid policy. Well, yes. I And I think the other thing is if the people who designed the legacy system designed it really well, it's almost like it's got antibodies that are going to fight this virus of change that you're bringing in there. And so it it's designed in such a way that things like what you're trying to do are almost impossible to do because it's trying to protect itself. 
Yeah. So you got to Like I've all, like in my last couple of places doing this, um, it's about creating like a grassroots movement yeah. of influential people and just showing them how dumb something is. Right. Or like, not, it's not that it's dumb. It's just that it's, <laughs> it let me explain to you why you're a total dumbass. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is what I tell Rusty needs white gloves yeah. and pull uh, in China shop. <laughs> right. But it's, it, but it is, it's like so nonsensically old. Yeah. Right. And there, and it's like, yeah, like 30 years ago, this was awesome. Like that toaster was so cool, but like now there's a toaster, you know, there's a toaster (laughs) with a screen on it and you can get your bagel to, you know, perfect perfect toast. Right. Like, yeah, it's $300. So I'm not going to buy that crap, but it's a better idea. Right. So like, it's, it's, it's just one of those things like just because the paper says so, like I need to get a grassroots movement of other people who think that the paper is dumb and make them realize that they were just doing it because they said so. Right. And now right. we're fighting the paper as a team. So at the last place, at the current place I'm at and the last place Christine and I were together, there was a quality process that um, I got a grassroots movement of quality, senior quality people and senior product people and people across all of the different organizations, I brought them together and I showed them that, yeah, you drew a circle in between, you know, these two phases and said agile workflow can go here, but you didn't do anything to change it, make it agile. So here's the, the system I built. Here are the places we're going to do these documents in this system that are going to enable your agile process flow in between these two phases to actually work. And then these are the, these are the things we have to do in the policy and procedure. These are the check-ins and committees we have to kill. These are the check-ins that we still need to do. Here's the one committee we still need if we're in this team structure and in this workflow. And they went and they changed the procedure. And the procedure now says, if you follow the, the system of delivery that we put into the, into place, um, you do not need to do all of this stuff. You only need to do 40% of it. And here's the 40%. So we actually reduced the, the check-ins and documentation and, and all those requirements by 60% by changing the procedure where in our pilot with the procedure being the old way, um, we did not reduce, we, we maybe shaved like, you know, 10%, 15% of the project timeline off. Okay. Um, where with the new procedure, we can actually probably shave like 20, 30, 40% of that project timeline off because we're doing 60% less of the stuff. You know, hearing you talk about it, I'm wondering why this is like totally sidetracked, but why PMOs and other, you know, groups like that in companies don't have a mechanism in place to kind of do a value stream and find the waste in the system and ask the question like, well, why, what value does this particular thing actually provide? Do we actually need it? And then removing them. It's like they just glom more stuff on because they can't remember why they did it in the first place, but it must be there for a reason. It's self-preservation too, Dave. Yeah. You know, if we could, if I could go through and, and lean value map every PMO process and procedure, like, how how much of it do you think is coming out the other end? You know, yeah, there'd be a lot of unemployed PMO people, right? Or people that not even unemployed, but maybe they just don't have the power they had before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so if I control everything in the workflow. 
I really run the company, even if I'm just a PMO person, because I'm really the one I'm, I'm managing all the gates and saying what can happen when, even though it's not technically my job. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's, that might be the other thing is that there, there are people in that position of running the company and controlling the gates without realizing that that's what they're doing. I mean, if they're the thing that causes the slowdown, they are the, they're the one setting the pace and they may not even have awareness of that. Right. And that all goes back to that institutional, but I have to, I have to do those gates. I have to do that. Someone told me I have to, And, and, and we've even seen things as super simple is I have to use this program because security is telling me I have to. Right. But we've got documentation saying we can use this, these four other programs, you know, yeah. and it, it's just a way to hang on to control. Yeah. yeah but Dave, I think like the, the more junior folks in the organization are, you know, the ones that are, they are the ones who have the institutional resistance and have to follow the policy and procedure because they don't have the power to change it. Or the confidence, yeah. Right, but to your point about like lean value mapping the process, like the leaders of those groups are the ones who would have to sanction that work. And that then would lead them into either being passive or actively resistant. (laughs) And if they're actively resistant and telling Christine to get the hell out of their stand-up and get to talk to the VP of then they are doing it intentionally and they, they know they're in that power position. Like a team of engineers who are delivering, you know, something that half the release is dependent on, know they're in a power position in that release, yeah. right? A VP in charge of PMO who has 42, you know, different processes in order to get your software checklist done before you can release it to production knows that they're the linchpin. And, and they probably either like it or believe that it's required for them to be for the company to be successful, but they're, they're managing and measuring the, or they're managing the, the, how the work gets done. Yeah. It's just, I'm thinking like if I am the person who finally got that corner office and what you're asking me to do is work, that's going to put me back into a cubicle because nobody really needs a corner office. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm kind of okay with the way things are right now. If I have the corner office, um, it would be a not, it's a position of comfort. It right. certainly is. Yeah. And, 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 you know, like the thing is too, is like, there's a bunch of selfish motivations that go into work and everybody has them, right? Like right. you're trying to move up. There's a, a target where you think your career needs to go. Um, whether it's like the corner office or a paycheck or whatever it a is, title. a title. Yeah. Um, so you're driving towards somewhere. If you're making the moves to get there, like, you're, you're, you're hustling, you're getting it done. Yeah. Like you put in your dues or whatever. But I think like that you have to, uh, like, this is where you become either a manager or a leader in my perspective. Like you can make the leaps and bounds and drive your career while still empowering people to work better while still giving people the, the, the freedom to grow in their roles and take over. And I think like insecurity and internal competition would keep that like i need to do x y and z to stay in the corner office yeah um, instead of like empowering your team to continue to do better and i think it takes you kind of talked about this before um it takes courage right um bravery doesn't exist everybody gets scared so bravery is the absence of fear and it's a fallacy 
right? Courage is I am scared. I'm in, in a slightly uncomfortable place, but I'm going to continue to do the right thing to complete the mission with my team to drive that success forward. And I think leaders have that courage and managers don't. And that's like an archetype of a, of a personality, right? Yeah. Like there's no leadership role. You're a senior manager and executive. Those are roles. You're a leader when you, when you get people around you to perform as optimally as possible to deliver, you know, value to your customers. Yeah. That's what I was just going to say. Like you and I, I feel like are constantly checking each other on, am I doing this for the right reason? And is this selfishly motivated because I want the title or is this better for the company that I'm working for? And I'm putting myself aside. Well, not anymore since you quit. <laughs> well, I think you're, I think you're both lucky that you have that though. I want to, Christina, I want to ask you a question. If you could go back to in time to talk to yourself the day before or the like the minute, five minutes before you walked into that room and got totally like blindsided, what would you say to yourself? What advice would you give yourself? Ooh, that's a good one, Dave. I think I would probably give myself a hug first. <laughs> I think about that all the time. That's that's like my thing. If I could go back in time, there's a couple points in my life where I would just give myself a hug and go, dude, it's going to be okay. Yeah. No, and I think like um, you're smart. Like give myself a pep talk. Like you're smart. You know what you're doing. Don't get discouraged. You got to go into this room because it's going to be pivotal in your career. Yeah. I think even, I mean, for the folks that are, might be going through those moments now, even when those moments happen, they suck. I mean, there's no way around it. Everybody has them. Everybody has days like that and they're horrible, but that's where the strength come from, comes from later on. So I always try to, when I have the presence of mind to do it, I try to think like, okay, what can I learn from this? What can I take away? How Absolutely. can I make this a gift instead of total torture? Right. And, and if you're learning, if you're taking all of those things, stepping back and learning something from it, then it was never anything you should ever regret going through. Yeah. Christine gave me the advice to not be in a bowl in a China shop, which sometimes I follow and sometimes I don't. Um, but like for, for me, like, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly the advice I would have given her before going in that meeting. If I knew what the outcome was going to be, it's like, hold your head up, go in there, take your punches, keep your space in the room. Um, and, and I, I don't know, like I probably would have been like, yeah, still go talk to the VP, still talk to your boss. But I think, um, the advice I would have given would be drive the result you want. Don't, mm -hmm. don't let your boss go off and drive some result, like be prepared to say, Hey, boss person, Hey, I want to be on the call with you and, and the VP of engineering because I want X, Y, and Z to happen. Yeah. And like, even if there's a compromise, at least be part of the driving towards that direction. I think that's the advice I would have, I would have given her before that situation. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Well, what about for the future? What about the people that are kind of headed down this path already? What what have you picked up that you can share with folks that are, you know, maybe a little bit, they've already been through that horrible meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's awful. It, it's hard. But I, I think, again, just make sure that you're learning and growing from those situations. 
and take as much of the hard and the insecurity that you felt in that moment and release it. Okay. And continue to move forward and learn and grow as a coach, as a leader, and um, make sure that you're always, and I will say this again and again, these transformations are about the people. So just continue to focus on that trust and influence with your people. The transformations are about the people, but like for you guys going through it, like you need to have a support system, like whether it's a mentor or a friend or just somebody that you can talk to because like my biggest thing with, with transformation work is like, it's emotionally exhausting. Um, like I'm a shoulder to cry on, I'm a punching bag, I'm whatever needs to happen for the client to get through their emotional ups and downs to go through a transformation. By the end of the day, I'm so sick of people that I need a break, right? Um, But you have to go home to your family and be that emotional support then for your family. Right. So you just need somebody who can help you through that. Um, like I've never, I had a mentor who's now retired and like hanging out with grandkids, like that person I used to talk to and he would, you know, you know, he appreciated, um, my attitude, but like would also gently nudge me in the right direction with things. Um, the other thing is your ideas may suck, but you don't know until you say them. Right. And so like, pepper out ideas like the way that agile coaches and and folks think about things is different so you're always going to get like a little stink eye from what it is you're saying yeah. but just remember like there's there's an idea and there's a discussion and there's a common ground and there's a solution right and and you can't get to the discussion and common ground and solution if both sides of the table aren't sharing their ideas. I mean, just like I think policies are stupid, like the people who write the policies probably think that my workflow ideas are stupid. And there's a way for everybody to be happy to get that grassroots like team movement of leaders driving towards um, putting this system in place to make the, the best decisions for the product to get to market. And I think like you need to say the crazy stuff and have the discussions to get to that common ground. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I always think of it like it's a it's a practice. It's not something you master. It's something, you know, like like meditation. I've been meditating every day for like 15 years and there's still a couple of days a week when I just my brain is just racing the whole time and it feels like I'm bad at it, but whatever. I show up every day, you keep trying, you keep plugging away and throwing out your ideas, you throw out bad ideas. You know, some people say there aren't bad ones. There's tons of bad ideas. But those bad ideas spark other ideas and that's you just can't give up. You have to keep trying. Yeah, the worst idea is the one you keep to yourself. <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> Not all the time. Like, uh, if anybody is familiar with the book Getting Naked, like they talk a lot about not being afraid to be wrong. And it's so true. Like, you might have an idea that's bad, and you just said it, Like, but there'll be a conversation around it, and it'll create five more ideas. And four of those five ideas may suck, but the fifth idea is the one that you know goes yeah. to market. Yeah. Uh, so without, if you just sit on your hands and don't say anything and you're the shy, like mousy person in the corner, like you're one, probably never going to be good at this because you have to be kind of like comfortable with discomfort and comfortable with being in the front of a room saying crazy stuff. And, and two, like you're never going to feel heard because you're not making yourself heard. 
Yeah. And and part of being heard is is being courageous to say what you need to say. Yeah. Cool. I want to ask you each one quick question. I hope it's quick. Um, cause it's something you just said and it's specific to the pandemic and it's a little bit off topic, but, um, Ross, you mentioned that, you know, you're, you're emotionally exhausted at the end of a day of coaching. Uh, I have that way with teaching. Like when I'm done teaching, I'm, I'm totally spent. I have nothing left. Um, and, and Christine, you mentioned like, he's still got to come home and be with the family. Um, it's different now for a lot of people because they work out of most people are working out of their home and it's not like you've got that, you know, hour long commute in the car where you can talk to people on the phone or just like blow stuff off and then be recovered somewhat when you get home. So I'm wondering if you can maybe share a suggestion or a word of advice for each of you, like how you reset at the end of a, a difficult day to be able to be, you know, with each other and with the family. Yeah. So um, this is not a plug, although it's going to come off that way. Uh, I am super into Orange Theory, and (laughs) there is nothing better than running off the day in the middle of the gym and just letting it fly away. Um, But not everyone gets that feeling from working out. Like, that is me. I love to run. I love to work out. And that is, like, such a good reset for me. Um, along with making sure that I'm getting some downtime. Like I just need super quiet. I need just no talking. Please don't talk to me. (laughs) I I need 20 minutes of silence. Um, But being able to have a family and boundaries within a family where that's okay. Listen, mom needs 20 minutes. Yeah go play on your iPad, but like I need silence. Um, or I need to go take a class because, you know, I had a long day just making sure that you're taking care of yourself. Okay. And the pandemic has been hard. I mean, it's been hard on all of the kids and yeah, everybody and everyone, because it's hard not to be social. Yeah. The pandemic's been great for me. Um, (laughs) Not having to talk to extra people has been wonderful. Um, I, you know, I get a little stir crazy though. Um, you know, every once in a while, like the weekends, the pandemic are hard because um, there's like usually I would have something to do or like get out for a hike or you know go do something. And you know the the weekends have been rough. So uh, doing projects like doing home projects is fun, um, setting up, uh, office spaces for people, um, so that we can have, you know, separate like little spaces to work. Um, the other thing like that I, that I've started doing recently, um, is setting up like an hour every day in the middle of the day. That's just not work. Right. So like getting that lunch set up and taking it, like whether it's going for a a workout or just like chilling and having lunch or whatever. I have an hour on my calendar blocked off in the middle of the day, every day. And and it gives me a nice break so that at yeah. the end of the day, I don't need that, you know, intense decompression. Like maybe I could just take a spin around the block at, after my last call or, you know, um, my coworkers and clients know, like I'll start cooking dinner. Like if they try to keep me past four 30, like I'll start cooking dinner on the phone. Um, and that kind of starts my decompression time or like, I'm weird. I really like to wash dishes. Um, so So yeah, 
People make fun of me because I don't have a dishwasher. I have a sanitation box because I'm a dishwasher. So the okay. dishes go in clean. Like you could eat off of my dishes before I run them. Wow. I run them anyway. Um, so, yeah. So I think that that's an important thing. A lot of people might, some people might kind of bristle at that because it sounds like, you know, oh, Ross is going to go have me time or whatever, but that's maintenance of the machine. If you don't create that space, the machine of you is going to break down and not function as well. And that's the best way to serve your family and the people you work with. Yeah. Hey, coworkers, if I don't take that hour off, it's just going to be worse for you, especially when we get towards the yeah. end of the day. So. <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, thank you guys are out there listening. Uh, don't bug me on my lunch hour. <laughs> I think that that's just like the whole, like this whole hour we've been talking about, like as a coach, um, yeah. as a leader, um, making sure that you have that self-awareness and exploring your own self-awareness, like whether that be through therapy or meditation or whatever that looks like, like yeah. as you being able to make sure that we're being as self-aware as we possibly can. Yeah. And the same way that you're trying to help companies become more self-aware, we need to each become more self-aware. Yep. Uh, well, thank yeah. you both for doing this, especially on the weekend. What if, Christine, what if people want to get in touch with you? What's the best way to reach you? Um, probably through LinkedIn. Um, okay. And we can link that. In yeah, I'll put the, that in the show notes. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, cool. And what about you, Ross? Yeah, same old, same old, man. Um, okay. The Agile site or LinkedIn is great. Um, and so your MySpace page. Say again? Your MySpace page and your, tic your TikTok. Yeah. You got it on the TikTok now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not just yelling at people on TikTok. Yeah. No, the, uh, the social. I, I, the social. Ross we does not like social media. On social media. <laughs> I don't like it. All right. Well, thank you both. This was really great. And I hope you have an excellent weekend. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dave. Dave. Pleasure, man.